This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario, or sorry, the city of Hamilton, rather, is pushing forward with a plan to implement uh, tiny homes for the homeless and uh, to put some of these homes down Hamilton's laneways. Uh, we have talked over the years at great length about what we could do with the network of laneways that is that are in this uh, very old city. Uh, and, you know, it's really only a few cities in Ontario and Canada that, 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 that are like Hamilton, Toronto, Kingston, Ottawa, uh, old, original Canadian cities uh, with these laneways. So there's always been lots of chatter about how we can, you know, best use them. Uh, ones that are open from block to block. I've, I've often said these should be bike paths in some way. These should somehow be part of a pedestrian network in some way. Uh, but another option for them is to use them uh, for very small homes. To talk more about all of this, Renee Wetzeller is with us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and on the line with us now. Hi, Renee. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks again. Uh, so exactly what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about uh, developing a type of housing that... Uh, may not look like what you've seen in the past. Um, you know, when we see uh, the development of apartments in Hamilton, usually we're looking at about 750 square feet for, say, a, a single apartment uh, for an individual. What we're talking about is reducing the footprint, reducing the size so we can accommodate uh, housing in different forms, uh, like you said, along laneways and um, using uh, whether it's uh, land that's owned by the city, parcels of land that are available, really to look at infill development in a different kind of way. And that's what we're trying to do here. How, how do you do this and not create slums or ghettos? <laughs> well, um, that's a very interesting concept. What we always, and when I say we, I'm talking about the Social Planning and Research Council and what our evidence shows and what uh, folks at the Hamilton Community Foundation or, uh, you know, urban planners think, what we need are mixed neighborhoods. So to, to talk about it in that kind of way kind of presumes that people who would live in a tinier type of dwelling uh, may be of a certain type of uh, person, which is not really fair. Um, but aren't know, these designed mostly for those who are homeless at this point? Was no, it, wasn't the project that, that we're, well, the project that the Social Planning Council is I mean, is the, the, I guess what we have to decipher is, is this for people who can't afford homes, or is this a neat new way for millennials to live? I think it's a combination of both. It can be the type of housing that a millennial may choose to live in, because, face it, they can't afford housing these days. Our housing affordability is, is at the worst since it's been in since 1990. Um, the project that we're working on on Clarence Street is designed to house women who have experienced homelessness. And we're really working with this population and this type of housing model to see if we can get both the regulations uh, in place, which we have now, and the type of housing in a neighborhood that would be a mixed-income neighborhood, which is, again, always the objective of what we're trying to achieve. A tinier building can fit into either a laneway or, or a unique type of setting that offers a, an alternative type of built form rather than trying to build, you know, big giant towers or big apartment buildings. Mm. We have an opportunity here to deliver a very low-cost, affordable housing form to a variety of folks. And I would not, you know, say it's for one or another, but it's looking at a built form that can be a great innovation for this city. 
Uh, who, how, who ownership? Who, who would run it? Who would who would collect rents? This sort of thing. Any idea there as far as a model? So the project that we're working on at uh, Clarence Street, we're working with Good Shepherd. So they are the developer, and they will be the landlord for this particular type of building. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at trying to develop a model that has the lowest rent possible, obviously, for people who are on OW or ODSP or maybe uh, on limited income or say they're on a basic income, like we've had the pilot, you know, we had a new announcement again today on that. So if we reduce the footprint and we reduce the cost to actually build, we can deliver an affordable model uh, that can meet the needs of a variety of audiences. It's funny that um, I was just speaking with someone this morning in Brad Lamb's development, uh, you know, the television city tower. His uh, One of his apartments that he's selling, I think is about 375 square feet, and those are actually selling as condos for over $200,000. So in terms of affordability, hmm. that's not really meeting the mark. That's, you know, not going to make it. Um, so we're looking at an alternative way to deliver on this. Uh, what are the challenges moving forward? Well, as you as you said, this is a new model. This is you know something that's perhaps being done in some projects in other cities, but yeah, normally not the way it's done for sure. Yeah, so uh, I've been working on this project now for about seven years, and the biggest hurdle has been the planning process. So getting city planners to really think differently about uh, both the pieces of land and the type of housing structure. Our local building code doesn't really match, say, to what the Ontario building code may be or what our zoning, um, some of Mm. our zoning and bylaws here don't match what the building code may be at the provincial level. So we do have a bit of a mismatch, and this uh, particular motion tries to deal with that mismatch so we can have a variety of built forms for a different kind of audience. Um, this obviously seems uh, to be something that's modified for laneways, alleyways. Are there other forms of this? Uh, are, are there other forms of alternative housing we can use on vacant lots or backyards or this, that, or the other? Yep. Uh, we have what we call secondary suites. So this might be a granny flat uh, in somebody's home. Certainly mm-hmm. getting more of those is really important. Again, the project that we're looking on in, on Clarence Street is uh, a model where uh, they're not single, you know, homes. They'll be attached and there'll be a space for a community to get together and gather. So that's certainly a different type of housing model. We've also kind of worked on ideas such as pocket housing, which is infill or sliding into narrow lots, and this has been very successful in Winnipeg. So again, the biggest hurdle, you know, um, people always say you need money. I'm of the belief that if you can push forward with innovation, money will follow. Hmm. And I think that that's certainly where we're starting to get at with this uh, motion and the uh, council unanimously approving this. We're going to see money follow this type of project. What about residents who want to do this privately or build those suites in their backyard or in their basements? Are we conducive to that? I mean, there's a whole other issue with that sort of thing. Yeah, and this will make it more conducive. I know folks who have kind of done it on their own. Once we started really raising the level of conversation about this locally, I have a friend who said, look, we had something in our backyard, we had some space, and we just built a tiny home back there, and we're just trying to figure out, are we going to rent it out, or are we going to have somebody in the family move into it, or whatever. But it always has been 
circulation around it. It has we haven't had the environment for it because we're under such great pressure to deliver more affordable housing in Hamilton. It's great to see that council is really moving forward on this innovation. Uh, has anybody really examined the network of laneways and, and alleyways to see what's there? Uh, is it you know is it a good use of space? Uh, are there other uses for these spaces? Well, there is um, there is there has been a, a growing interest in alleyways through the uh, neighborhood action strategy through the Gibson and Lansdowne Neighborhood Association um, leadership by you know folks like Brenda Duke have put laneways certainly on the map. They've been doing alleyway cleanups now for a number of years and really reclaimed alleys. So uh, people are more uh, open to having this type of. Um, you know, space used in different kinds of ways. And certainly what we're trying to push for, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more, is uh, around inclusionary zoning. So if we had, say, for example, inclusionary zoning on a on a development project, we could see more of this type of project being just, you know, how things happen. This is just how we do things. What do you mean by inclusionary zoning? Explain that term. So inclusionary zoning is uh, the the whole idea, and it has been approved at the provincial level, is that new developments would require a percentage of their development to be um, for affordable housing. Mm. The percentage is always contested. Some say 5%, people like myself say 25%, of course. Um, means that, you know, as developers uh, move forward with their plans, they will have to make sure that a portion of that is uh, at a certain rate so uh, people you know can obviously uh, have some affordable housing in their neighborhood and this also builds mixed income neighborhoods as well uh, what about transportation through these alleyways um, you know I've often thought especially as we're moving more towards bike and and, and walkable cities and such are are we keeping that in mind when we're perhaps uh, building on these laneways that were once corridors yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm a cyclist myself, and I certainly try and take advantage of laneways where I can. Um, Are we you know, missing we something have, there? And, you know, I mean, I, I've only investigated this on the surface, but is there something there? In terms of... Transportation. Um, you know, there is, they're very walkable. A lot of the neighbor, the, the alleys that have been cleaned up are now very walkable. And, you know, there are cyclists, obviously, that move through this in an informal way. I know that there is a lot of work being done, particularly in preparation for LRT, that, uh, you know, how can we use these other pieces of land to really create a great network for transportation? So all of these things, I think, are being factored in now to our planning processes. Uh, you talked earlier about attitude uh, and just, especially with bylaws and neighborhoods and such, just how maybe some of them haven't advanced the way they should. Are you finding that there's the appetite there for this discussion now? I think now that we have some new leadership in the Planning and Economic Development Department with Jason Thorne, certainly when he came on board, I met with him quite early to say, you know, these are the kinds of things that the communities or the neighborhoods are pushing for. And uh, he's been very supportive of this kind of work. And uh, he's really transferred that knowledge back down to his staff that he wants to see innovation. You know, he's obviously the person who brought us the uh, ability to have, um, you know, little pop-up uh, uh, pieces in front of restaurants and things like that. So innovation, I think, is coming. Uh, this city's planning processes have been quite antiquated, but I think now with uh, folks like Jason on board, we can get some movement.
what can you tell us about this type of housing? You know, we've heard we've heard some people using uh, various forms. Some are prefab things. Some are built just specifically from the area. Some have even used shipping containers in some forms. Any idea? Have you have you explored all those in in what form this may take? Yeah, I, I, we certainly we have. I mean, shipping containers are still shipping containers yeah. at the end of the day, sure, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there has been uh, a project here in Hamilton that brought a number of shipping containers together to build a house. So, and actually, I'm working on a project to use shipping containers for pop-up businesses. So, mm-hmm. that's a whole other discussion we can have. Um But in terms of the built form, you know, we really have to be innovative uh, in terms of both the materials that we use and then how we design the space inside. And the one thing that we're working with on the Clarence Street project is how can we design something so that uh, if, uh, and this this is housing geared to women, if, say, there's an opportunity for family reunification or for someone to, you know, somebody has a child or whatever, that we have enough space in there for those kinds of things. So it's not like a tiny cramped apartment, that it's a livable space. We've worked with a group of women through the Women's Housing Planning Collaborative, women who have experienced homelessness and who are housed now, and asked them, what do you need for this type of housing? And they've clearly articulated that for us in the design plan. So things like good lighting, having access to laundry, having access to community space, being able to garden, being able to wash my windows, stuff like that comes with this type of built form and that's what I really like about it. We're not talking about infill development with towers. We're talking about infill development that really fits in the neighborhood and encourages mixed housing and mixed incomes in neighborhoods. Uh, are, are we, is that possible in a lane way? What's that? Having a quality of life like that? I would I would say so. I mean, certainly where I live, we have a quasi laneway off the back of our house. I mean, it is a named road, but really most of the time there's no traffic there. And I know this from the other neighborhoods that we work in. People enjoy those neighborhoods. They're fixing them up. They're painting their garages. Kids are playing in those neighborhoods and they're becoming safer spaces. Certainly, you know, if we had a safe injection site, for example, in the lower city, that would help a lot moving parts of this conversation along. So, again, it's part of a, a always, these things are always part of a broader conversation that we need mm. to think about. But certainly, uh, people have reclaimed these spaces and made them their own. And, um, you know, it's quite lovely now if you took a tour of some of these neighborhoods to see the, uh, you know, the regeneration of these spaces happen. So, pride of home ownership. Your your feeling is is if if they have something if some something to go to that they'll they'll do their part. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, the 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 more disconnected you are from the space that you live in, I think the more you tend not to really care. And if we develop a type of housing where people are a little more in touch with the built environment, they can participate, support, um, you know, be able to fix things. Then I think they're more likely to want to stay housed and wanted to want to be part of their neighborhood. How do you balance this with uh, accessibility, uh, safety? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these bylaws are there to keep laneways open in case of fire and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. And our, our Clarence Street project, that was one of the biggest challenges that we had was getting fire access uh, to that site. So, you know, we had to move the fire folks along a little bit in that conversation. And again, it just shows you how getting to this point in a community like this takes a lot of time because there's a lot of moving pieces. 
And this is why development like this doesn't always happen because, you know, who wants to spend seven years trying to push a bunch of people along so you can get a, a bylaw change, right? But, um, you know, with our partners around the table, with Good Shepherd in place, with the leadership here at the Social Planning Council, we've been able to do that. What do you hope to learn from the Clarence Street Project? Well, what I hope to learn is, A, how to deliver uh, an affordable, accessible housing form that will suit women who have either experienced homelessness or haven't been precariously housed. In terms of this project, that's the first objective. I think if we are successful in this project, there's all types of housing needs that could be met in different parts of the city. So really, this is a bit of a litmus test for us, both in terms of the type of people that we are trying to house and the type of built form that we are working with. But those pieces together, I think, can be quite powerful then to move other development to happen. Uh, one listener writes uh, along the lines of um, there's lots of uh, vacant spots, parking, um, brownfields, what have you in, in Hamilton. Why not, uh, rather than trying to stack people up like cordwood in, in a city, why not just build homes that suit them there? Or any, uh, I, you know, as, yeah. as opposed to cramming people into alleyways, I guess. Uh, well... I mean, but you come is, you come back to the you come back to a cost and expense. This is a well, lot cost cheaper. and expense for sure. I mean, it would be wonderful if all the brownfields in Hamilton were turned over to affordable housing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can imagine even if we had our inclusionary zoning at the West Harbor development, we would uh, make some headway on this. But again, it, you know, it requires a lot of people moving forward together. Um, we do. Uh, we have supported the Hamilton Community Land Trust which is a, um, essentially a land bank organization. They've acquired their first property at 278 Wilson Street, and they're working with Habitat for Humanity to deliver a housing form for families. They're working with Arcelor Middle DeFasco to build a, a steel-type home as well. So, And that's all exciting development that's been a spinoff from our Clarence Street work. So you can see how as we move through some of these processes, laneways as, as I can call them, um, other people come on board and other projects start to happen. You really have to work with what you have. I mean, if you had the, if you had the money, you'd be going after the big projects, but you have to oh, work with yeah. what you have, oh, right? Absolutely. Again, but if we can get this council to start nodding all at the same time, like they did on the tiny house motion, then we can start getting some movement on affordable housing. And I keep saying it's an election year next year. We have a provincial election and we have a municipal mm. election. Anything that we can do to move those folks farther on this will be really helpful because we haven't made a lot of movement on the wait list. There are a lot of people who are precariously housed. And again, as I said, may have said earlier, we've had the uh, worst case of housing affordability here in Canada since 1990. So it certainly is a challenge that hasn't gone away. Rene Wetzeller has been with us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, talking about the idea of tiny homes. Rene, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As Sarah Wara Poljanski has and has several times, uh, she is a Hamilton mother, become activist, and uh, is now uh, and has continued to be uh, hopping mad about uh, electricity rates in this province. She is the founder of Hamiltonians Against High Hydro and uh, has uh, penned lots of uh, uh 
articles on that and, and comments on that and has uh, advocated for lower rates for Hamiltonians uh, for some time now. The Ontario Energy Board has rejected a request from Hydro One to increase its administrative costs because, you know, the people at Hydro One don't make enough uh, to spend more on capital and to spend more on capital projects. Uh, the decision comes as part of a review of the 2016 uh, hike request from the company, and if it approved, would see rates jump this year and 4.8% the next year. So much for all of that great stuff that Kathleen Wynne was doing by renegotiating the car loan and pushing it farther down the road. Because uh, at the end of the day, what we get, they taketh away. So uh, I guess that's good news in the sense that the headlines out of the Canadian press are every, uh, energy regulator orders Hydro One to cut administrative budget by $30 million uh, over the next uh, two years. Let's bring in Sarah Ori Poljanski. Uh, she is with us now. Sarah, uh, what are your thoughts on all this? This must be good news. You must be happy. I am very happy, and I know a lot of people in the city are as well, because I actually spoke at one of those meetings in Ancaster back in June, and that was one of my main points, is that when they continue to raise the prices and they look at the ratepayers, not just residents, but people like small businesses, the thing is, at the end of the day, we don't have this money. And when you look as a resident or even a small business owner who's working hard, trying to get ahead, and you see that the CEO is making, you know, last year he made $4.84 million. The top five executives shared $11 million in salaries alone. And you say, you know, I don't have this money. You know, a lot of people are making fifty, sixty thousand dollars if that, and these people are making that much money in the public sector being paid by us. So when they, the government finally says we're going to toe the line, this is unacceptable, it's good news because, again, this isn't a private company. I kind of liken it to like a Coke and Pepsi thing. I don't have, at the end of the day, I'm not choosing who I'm purchasing my hydro from. I have to take what I get. And this is the major company we have in Ontario that they do the distribution and whatnot. And for me not to have a choice to opt out of paying this guy, it's ridiculous. So it's good that the government's going to kind of put it in line and have looked across the board, because when we see across Canada, other CEOs are making maybe $300,000. So this guy's making, you know, over $4 million. It's kind of crazy. Sarah, you've been talking about this. We've been talking about this for an awfully long time. Why do you think there's action on this now? Well, we both know. We don't have to ask. An election's coming, right? I'm sure I'm sure somewhere Glenn Tebow and Kathleen Wynne may have, I, I can't say for sure, I don't know, I don't want to be sued, but someone kind of hinted, you know, we need to do something, an election's coming. We know that the Kathleen Wynne liberals are spending, what, $5.5 million in those ads to tell people the hydro's going down and whatnot. So it is funny at a time, but at the same same point, I'm going to give them a little bit you know, that they did hold these consultations. People did say, you know, this was one of their main concerns. So it could be a variety of things. Uh, too little, too late? Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. The fact we have right now the 25%, whatever, uh, cutback, which, like you said, is just kicking the can down the road. It's actually, hydro isn't cheaper. It's just, you know, we're going to go into further debt, and my kids and grandkids are going to, you know, have to pay for it, and we're going to pay, you know, the interest payments we have on the debt now is just going to go up. So, like, these are things that the government, it, it's their own incompetence. They should have known. Uh, back when they passed the Green Energy Act, a lot of professionals came out and they said that hydro would get, you know, really expensive. The liberals and the NDP chose to go ahead. They they ignored the advice of the professionals and they went forward with it and this is what happens after years and years of neglecting the elephant in the room you know we now have 
subsidize hydro. We have programs where people need to apply to, you know, get some other subsidies. It's adding to the debt. We have to now cut these, you know, rates, to, like you said, too little, too late. These are things that should have been looked at, you know, a couple of years ago as it was progressing, not wait until, you know, suddenly it's going to explode. Oh, we need to fix this because, you know, at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to actually uh, happen long term because of this. It's one thing to say, okay, we're going to start cutting back salaries, do this and that. But again, like we have these contracts for energy that are 20 years long that we need to pay for, whether we use this hydro or not, we still are selling it to the states or giving it to them or paying them to take it. There are a lot of things. This is a systemic issue. This is great news. Yes, they're going to start. They're working on one thing, but this needs to be followed through and start looking at every other, you know, problem that's been caused because of this, and I think it's going to actually take a new government coming into power before that's done. A spokesperson for uh, Energy Minister Glenn Tebow said that uh, this won't impact the plan to cut bills by 25%. <laughs> well, yeah, it won't. I guess it won't impact that in the sense, but you'll still have less money in your pocket. It's amazing how they frame these words. Uh, goes on to say, uh, quote, this is yet another example of the OEB's strong record of denying hydro companies all they ask for and reviewing rate applications with the consumer in mind first. Your thoughts? Um, that's actually a really funny thing to say, the Ontario Energy Board, to continue to look out for the people. Um, I've met with the Energy Board privately in Toronto when I had a meeting with them to discuss some of these things. And when we had these consultations, and the one in Ancaster specifically, a good friend of mine, Ben Levitt, who's running for the PCs for HWAD, actually brought up the fact that I think only one, there's only been one other time where they've denied rate increases, and it had to do with some kind of technicalities. So I would ask that, you know, Glenn Thibault and his people actually can show us then in black and white when the other times they've been uh, denied and what were the causes. Because from my own understanding, and it may, maybe it's just me, there's only been really one time that they've not went through with it. It's kind of like when I asked him uh, to explain where all the jobs were as a result of the Green Energy Act. He pointed to Tilsonburg, and then a few months later, it closed. Yeah, exactly. Where are those jobs? Because, yeah. uh, again, from some of the stuff I've read... For every, and again, I have to relook this up because it's old, like it's been a while. Um, something like for every one job that's created for Green Energy Act, we've lost maybe four or five long-term stable jobs, right? Because they're focusing more on the solar and wind powered and we're losing them in the other like energy sector kind of jobs, right? And manufacturing that's left. A lot of industry refusing to, you know, stay here or start up here because of the energy costs. So there really isn't these jobs that they went on and on about, it's kind of, I think, when they do finally get some, they're short-term, and they kind of really blow the propaganda up with it to kind of in our face. Oh, look what we've done. But then again, like you said, once they leave, they're not showing us in your face that they're leaving. Mm. Uh, Do you think this still resonates with Ontarians? You were talking about your meeting in Ancaster there back in the summer and, you know, uh, there was as many staff members there from Ontario Hydro, or sorry, Hydro One, as there were, uh, you know, people in the room such as, your sh- such as yourself. What does that say? I think at that point, people are getting tired of it. it, it they know what's going on. They feel helpless. You know, they're, what, why, you know, because when we first started this, like there, there were hundreds of people showed up to City Hall. This was, you know, everyone was roaring to go. And I think as it went on and on, people got a little bit tired. They felt helpless. So I think right now what this is going to do is show people, you know, you do have a voice. You do need to be active. This is your money. Get involved in politics and get involved in the things that are affecting your lives. 
So I think now after this and as we move closer to the next provincial election, people will again start to get active and moving and want to exercise their right to vote and to speak up about these issues. So I'm, I'm hoping with this, this is a win for us to say, you know what, people like myself who go out, we do this, the people, even if they're just on the internet sharing information with others, we can make a change and this will motivate them to again get involved and continue. Uh, whose side is the OEB on, do you think? So the Energy Board is obviously arm's length, you know, of the government. Um, they are there to, again, protect us. But at the end of the day, um, they're paid by the government. So, you know, I don't know. It's one of those things, right, is that they're there to protect us. But at the same time, the government's probably chose the line. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Ontario government spending $5 million, over $5 million, I guess, to uh, tell us that we're getting a rebate or a discount or whatever you want to call it? Um, the benefit, the some, benefits of the refinance. Um, I'm going to do some like shameless self-promotion. So I'm back working in my profession. I work as an addictions worker. We know right now in Ontario there's a lot of issues going on with not only addictions but also with the education system. Um, and so when I see that money being spent on pretty much self-promotion ads leading, you know, eight months, whatever, into an election, I think it's a waste of people's money. It should be going towards things that we need as taxpayers we rely on, not to have the government tell us, look at what we're doing after, you know, the, the mess they made. Like, they created this mess. So don't tell me, you know, oh, after years of creating this mess, we're helping you by adding to the debt to save you maybe $40 a month. You know, that's my money, that's your money, that's the people who are working hard every day. Use it on stuff that we need, like addiction services, mental health, health care, education, stuff like this. Not these ads that just try to make us think that, you know, you're doing a great job leading up to the next election. Uh, you know, I, I think what bothers me most about all of this, Sarah, is that it was all self-inflicted. None of this had to happen. It wasn't like there was a crisis. It wasn't like there was a natural disaster. It wasn't like there was an economic uh, uh, crisis of some sort. This was all just them uh, over-aggressively pursuing green energy and using it as a means to get votes, preying on, you know, uh, uh, people who are sensitive to this sort of thing, and just at any cost... Going green, going green, going green, going green, going green. And, you know, I, I said this to the pre to the premier when she was on. You know, she said, well, we're way, we're way ahead of everybody. And I said, in what? Like, what was the advantage to being first? Because every other province is now looking at us and saying, well, that's exactly what we don't want to do. Uh, yeah. It just, like, I think that's what bothers me most of any of this is that, you know, education, healthcare, the things you're talking about, what have you. There's so many other things that we could have spent our money on, and this was totally self-inflicted. It was, and that's the thing, is I say to people, we now have a debt that's occurred because of an ideology, failed ideology, yeah. which, in a way, I don't want to say should be illegal. It's, you need to try things, but at the same time, like you said, to aggressively pursue something, even though you know it's failing and see it's not working and it's hurting people, it's hurting business, it's driving the private sector out of the province, right? It, it, but to keep going, it's that thing, right? Like, stupidity is doing the same thing over and over, and you know it doesn't work. Mm. Like, to me, like... I recycle. I, you know, don't use hydro if I don't need to. And the thing, though, is that the government needs to stop penalizing people and using negative reinforcement to try to get stuff done. And they need to do something more proactive. That's my thing, because you, you will help. People will be more receptive to something 
um, if you kind of reward them mm. instead of punish them. And so that's all they've done, literally, with this Green Energy Act. Like, as you know, like the hydro rates continue to go up to try to get you to stop using it. And now we're not using it. And so it's like, oh, well, we got to raise it now even more because <laughs> of, you know, these reasons. So yeah. it's like, why don't we have something, come up with something, sit down with people, ask them, what are you doing with your hydro? How can we help you? Not also to, you know, when they have this, these carbon taxes as well, punishing me for putting gas in my car to drive to work, right? So. Sarah Wara Poljanski has been with us, founder of Hamilton, uh, Hamiltonians Against High Hydro. Sarah, website to go to here if we want to find out more? Uh, we just have a Facebook page. If you just, uh, in the, the search bar of Facebook, Hamiltonians Against High Hydro, um, so we have, there's a lot of other groups online, and we all share information, news articles, memes, because obviously, so. All right, Sarah, good luck. Keep up the fight. Oh, thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, according to a new bo- uh, new poll, this is conducted by uh, Echoes Research for the Canadian Press. The federal liberals and conservative parties are statistically tied for support. Uh, the NDP remain a distant third. Uh, how will this change come next election? Boy, it's going to be a little different than the ones we've seen in the past. Peter Grave is with us now, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is on the line now. Peter, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. Is the honeymoon officially over now for Justin Trudeau? Uh, I suppose. I suppose, although, I mean, he still remains relatively popular personally. Uh, but the Liberal Party has gone down from where it was at election night at about 39% down into the low 30s. So uh, quite clearly the, the bump in support that he had in the election and then uh, you know, approval ratings and support for the Liberals you know, heading up into the, the 40s after that, uh, I think that is over. Uh, I think his government has been there long enough that he's no longer, if he was Mr. Change when he got elected, well now he's, uh, you know, he's a Prime Minister and so... Uh, he can't always claim that everything he's doing is fresh and new. He has to begin to explain uh, some things that he's tried and haven't gone right. Uh, so, and, and let's be serious, they're still holding their own. This is normal. Any reason to panic here for them? Uh, well, I mean, if they want to be re-elected as a majority government, they aren't going to do it at 32%. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the capacity to uh, get re-elected as a majority government is still uh, in front of them as a possibility. Uh, but, I mean, it is a difficult situation for them uh, in that, given the way that support for the parties is split across this country, it's becoming more difficult for a party to form a majority government. And uh, uh, the sort of rates of support that they have, that seems a little unlikely. Uh, the path for victory to the Conservatives doesn't seem a whole lot more likely either. So, I mean, we may be headed towards a minority government in a couple of years' times, although obviously it's a lot to go from one poll to uh, predicting the future in, in 24 months from now. Lots of uh, chatter around his tax reform, around those issues uh, with small business, doctors, farmers, and such. Um, this yet, at this point, does not really seem to be making an impact, though, does it? Well, I think, uh, you know, the same poll that came out showed that most Canadians were, of the, you know, favored the, the framing of this as uh, a useful tax measure to uh, rein in uh, some wealthy Canadians who had been trying to uh, dodge paying taxes through a variety of different loopholes. They bought that view over the idea that this was just a tax grab. So I think on the issue itself, actually, uh, Justin Trudeau has a potential winner. I mean, there will be some uh, people, including people who give to his party, who will be unhappy with it. 
uh, but with Canadians it's relatively popular. But at the same time, I think it probably hasn't helped him. I think most people watching it, at least semi-closely, are going to see a government which seemed really ill-prepared for bringing this forward, almost surprised that wealthy people who are going to be taxed six or 7000 bucks a year or more might get upset and have some lobbying power. And so the real weakness with which Morneau has fielded questions with it, the, the inability of the Liberals to really have a clear story to tell around this change and about why we shouldn't worry about what's going to happen to doctors and so forth, uh, means that even if people favor the policy, they may begin to question the competence of the government. And uh, I think that's probably the bigger concern for the Liberals on this file. Uh, many thought that this would resonate with voters. If it's not, why is he faltering? Is it just the fact that he can't be new forever? Uh, well, I mean, I think part of the, the lack of uh, resonance is the, the lack of preparation. Uh, he hasn't been effective in answering questions from Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons. There hasn't been a very clear way of explaining, uh, you know, wh- why it looks this way. And there's been no kind of counter-argument to, uh, to, to push the other way. Uh, and, you know, I mean, in Hamilton, we're, we're familiar with situations of people losing their pensions, uh, you know, the steel workers and other people at Sears. Uh, uh, but, you know, the government, you know, has been relatively uh, deaf to that sort of argument, but that would have been a very good one to bring forward and say, well, why are these people suddenly all worried about uh, doctors having a tough time saving for their retirement when they said nothing about these other groups? So I think part of it is a, is a weakness in preparation. But, I mean, it is true also that, I mean, the government has been there. Uh, it can't claim that the problems that people have in their day-to-day have nothing to do with them because they've been there for two years and uh, you can't necessarily solve complex problems in that length of time. Uh, but you begin to get answerable for them and people begin to say, well, what have you done? And on that, uh, you know, the Liberals maybe don't have entirely convincing answers. Uh, you talked about uh, how a majority like the one they had may be more difficult now. Uh, how does Jagmeet Singh's name being pushed into this race now as leader of the NDP, federal NDP, how does that change the discussion? Uh, well, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, in some ways, the Liberals um, are probably, uh, I mean, one's never happy to lose support. Uh, but to do so at this point is made useful for them because they can begin to craft the argument that the real danger is Andrew Scheer uh, and that the only way to stop Andrew Scheer, obviously, is to re-elect the Liberal government. And so it is a way for them to try and take the wind out of the sails of uh, the new NDP leader. Nevertheless, I think he must uh, be a bit of a uh, scary phenomenon for them. Uh, I mean, their majority was built by winning seats in Vancouver, uh, and in Toronto and around Toronto, two areas where uh, Mr. Singh was very successful in signing up new members and in you know basing his winning campaign, and where he's likely to have some appeal, particularly to voters who voted for Justin Trudeau uh, because he represented change to them. Uh, I think uh, an argument that Mr. Singh will also bring forward. So in that context, I think the Liberals are afraid of a, a splitting of the votes, uh, you know, which would depress their numbers of elected members and increase those either of the NDP or in some cases where that vote got split in favor of electing more conservatives. So their path to victory, you know, not just because they're down in the polls, but also because the NDP looks like it might be a threat in a couple of key liberal heartlands, uh, I think must, uh, must be a concern to them. Where Mr. Singh maybe has his biggest uh, shortcomings would be in Quebec, But even there, it's not clear that the Liberals have a whole lot of space that they could gain 
even if the NDP vote went down further in Quebec. What about uh, just the rise so quickly uh, of Jagmeet Singh and, of course, uh, the persona, the personality, very charismatic, uh, GQ, sharp dresser, social media active. Uh, He's got the personality. Is is he going to try to out-Trudeau Trudeau? Uh, Well, I mean, there's certain similarities in style. Uh, I mean, Mr. Trudeau was, uh, I mean, in a way, he was able to maintain that persona much longer than the media wanted him to, right? Uh, He he was been like that for years, and it was only really in getting elected then that I think people began to tire of it. But, uh, you know, again, if someone rises quickly uh, on the basis of a certain showiness, there's also, you know, soon enough, uh, people come to resent that and look for reasons not to like it. And I think... Uh, as with Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Singh is going to face the same uh, the same issue uh, on that basis that, uh, uh, you know, people get excited with him, but then, you know, he, he becomes boring or yesterday's news or you look for reasons, you know, not to like him. So, I mean, it's a bit of a dangerous form of fame, I think. Uh, but I think Mr. Singh's sort of strength is probably that he has a number of different stories to tell uh, that may be appealing to, to particular segments of the electorate. So that his appeal... You know, it's not just uh, a flashy style. Uh, I mean, presumably... That and, was... and one of those one of those stories, the fact that he's self-made, I mean, the story of his family coming over here and, and the struggles that he had, as a, you know, you weigh that as opposed to uh, Trudeau talking when he's referring to these tax situations that we've been referring to earlier, uh, he, he makes reference to his family wealth. And, you know, so there's, you know, a guy with a silver bone with a silver spoon in his mouth versus the person who is self-made. How do you think that's going to play out in selling all this? Well, I mean, certainly he's going to play that up. Uh, I mean, it's a bit harder when you've been to private school. (laughs) I'm like Mr. Singh. Uh, So, uh, but I mean, clearly, uh, I think he will play up that aspect uh, uh, of being. uh, being But private school self-made looks different than, you know. Well, I suppose you could say you work extra hard to, to, to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, that certainly is going to be an aspect that he's going to sell. I mean, in other communities, he can go and he can tell the sort of uh, immigration rags to riches story. Mm-hmm. So he can go to, to first-generation uh, first, uh, immigrants and say, you worked hard in this country uh, so that your kids could do well. You know, now I'm not like specifically your kid, but I can be like your son. We could have elected prime minister now. Isn't that a story you want to tell? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, there's a variety of different stories he can pull out in different constituencies. Many, uh, many of those constituencies uh, uh, are are important to the Liberal Party and are ones where the NDP hasn't necessarily done well in the past. So, uh, I think he's a bit of an untested uh, uh, politician. Uh, he's, he's sat in the Ontario legislature, uh, but focused uh, largely on questions of policing and carding. Uh, some of human rights, and so I think the the other parties will really be trying to see, you know, what are the real strengths and limitations, uh, so that they can craft campaigns to try and contain his appeal, uh, and maybe try to beat it back. What are your thoughts on Andrew Scheer, leader of the uh, conservative federal Conservative Party, his performance so far? Uh, well, it seems that he's done quite well in uh, in a question period. Uh, I think he's working hard to try and craft a vision uh, or an image of being uh, somewhat moderate. Uh, he certainly tried to make sure that Chris Alexander and Kelly Leach uh, are no longer in the picture. So some of the aspects uh, uh, around a kind of more divisive politics of who really counts as a Canadian or should we be patrolling our borders more and so forth uh, has been pushed to the side. So in that sense, I think he's uh, uh, indicating that he wants to run as a more centrist kind of conservative. 
but I think the issue for him will be as uh, as we get closer to the election and as the Liberals presumably begin to invest more in trying to frame him, uh, will be whether he can sell that successfully. Uh, you know, having sat in the uh, Stephen Harper Conservative government and being in many ways a party, you know, that continues to be in continuity with that uh, that trajectory. So. Uh, I think he's trying to set himself up uh, in that manner as a sort of centrist, uh, a young person, a new face in politics, uh, could bring a new Conservative Party forward. Uh, but he hasn't really faced a, a, a real strong and concerted push by the other parties to frame him as something different. So, so far, I think he's been quite successful. You use the term uh, young face. Uh, by the time the next election rolls around, uh, Trudeau well, is now the older guy. He's, he's the experienced older guy. How will that ch- cha- uh, change the complexion of this election? Well, I think suddenly, uh, you know, last time uh, Trudeau could be shown or be painted as, you know, is he up for the job? Uh, does you he you can't really say, gravitas? you really can't say he's not ready yet. <laughs> no, I mean, part because he's been doing the job and, uh, you know, one can criticize it. But uh, certainly when Canadians look at the job he's been doing compared to that of the President of the United States, you know, one might have a bit more comfort about the fit of his uh, character and uh, hmm. reflection. I guess Trump is making every political leader around the world look good now. Yeah, but I mean, even Trudeau, I mean, we can name stumbles, but, uh, you know, even if he isn't necessarily the brightest person in the room, it seems that he listens to uh, advisors who are pretty smart. <laughs> so uh, he'll do things that people criticize, he'll do uh, make mistakes and do things wrong, but, you know, it's hard to make the case that somehow he's grossly out of his depth. Um, you know, again, one can criticize things he says for being naive and so forth, but uh, kind of a basic competence is, is evident. So, I mean, that, that critique won't work against him anymore, and it will be especially, I think, unuseful, uh, given the presence of uh, two leaders who will be even more youthful than he is. Uh, I mean, I guess part of the question for someone like Andrew Scheer is that he's a young guy with, in some ways, old ideas, um, you know, and on positions like things like abortion, although he says he doesn't want to reopen it, some ways he's saying we should go back to how things were before the boomers came along. So he's a, he's kind of a millennial uh, with a pre-boomer set of ideas in some areas. Uh, so how he packages that in terms of trying to find a way to extend uh, support for the conservatives down into a younger demographic, you know, which is important uh, for them given that their base is aging. Um, you know, how he manages to parlay his own youth into an appeal will be interesting to, to watch because he can make the claim to being youthful, but uh, he nevertheless holds a bunch of policies which are kind of in continuity with an older conservative tradition. How does he come out from behind the shadows of the personalities of uh, Jagmeet Singh and and Justin Trudeau, who are pretty personable people? Well, I mean, I think uh, he has two things going for him. I mean, first, he's a leader of the opposition, and that makes him central in the storyline of what the news tells us is going on, at least in Parliament. Uh, you know, he gets more questions, he gets more visible questions, he leads off the questioning. There's a way in which he gets to frame uh, what we as citizens get to see what's happening in Ottawa, uh, which is, uh, you know, a considerable power. I mean, Thomas Mulcair wasn't able to turn that into success in the election, but it certainly meant that at the start of the last election he was seen as you know, the real uh, the real opponent to Harper. Uh, he, you know, he lost that over the course of that campaign. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the Conservative Party has deep pockets. They've been very successful in raising money. They have a supporting infrastructure as well as, you know, a series of organizations uh, that are supportive of their party and, you know, the social media uh, or who are able to get out uh, messages and run campaigns. And so, 
in that way, Andrew Scheer can also, you know, start with a strong base. Uh, there's a third of the Canadian electorate, which is uh, likely to support the Conservatives, more or less, come what may. Uh, and, you know, on, uh, he has a capacity to reach them, uh, build their interest. And, I mean, that's not a bad place to be starting for a campaign when you have to get to, like, 39% or so to form a majority government in this country. Uh, you know, he's within striking distance if he can keep his base of, you know, say 30% of the electorate uh, excited and interested in what he's doing. Uh, it seems that the NDP has sort of been in a uh, post-Tom Mulcair, or Hayes, or Funk, uh, you know, they really haven't uh, come out of. D- does the election of this new leader, does this is this a brand new NDP party? Is Is this something to be contended with, or is there a long learning curve here and still a divisive party? Uh, I think there's a long learning curve. I mean, um, uh, Mr. Singh is starting with 15% uh, in the polls, which is still about 50% better than Jack Layton started with back in 2003. So he has a certain base to build from. Uh, you know, he's also managed to sign up a lot of members to vote for him in the uh, in the uh, leadership campaign. Presumably some of them will be staying around to help him organize uh, more meaningful NDP campaigns. So, I mean, I think the NDP is in, a, is in a tough spot, but they finally do have a leader, which means they can probably go out and fundraise in a manner that they haven't been able to do since the last election, you know, where they have had a base, which you know, was, I guess, a uh, upset with the result in 2015, and then didn't have a leader around which to really define a pitch and an appeal. So in that way, I think the NDP now has an opportunity to try and build off that base of 15%. Uh, they have some new members to do it. Uh, but it's nevertheless a, it's a difficult position to be in, uh, being the third party in a uh, in our electoral system, uh, and with only two years to really begin to define something that would be unique uh, heading into the 2019 election. Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. A new poll saying liberals and conservatives are statistically tied for support. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.